listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly horse racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Schneider, Brandon Jaggers, and me, C.C. Broadus. Hello, everybody. This is CC Broadus. Welcome to episode 50 of the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. And I'm joined tonight by my good friend, Alan Schneider. Alan, can you believe we've done 50 of these? I cannot. Uh, I am can't wait to do 250, 750 more. Bring it on. Finally, we've got some good weather here in Kentucky. Uh, I think it's going to snow, though, in a couple nights. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, I hope not. Uh, but we never. It, it's The weather's been wonderful here for a couple of weeks now. We needed to hold off for another week and a half, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. It's supposed to be okay next week, as of right now. As of right now. Well, we're less than two weeks away from the Kentucky Derby, and uh, just curious, have you? Do you have a selection yet, or, or, or no, or you want to wait till the draw, or what? How, how's it? How's things looking? Uh, I'll be honest with you. I think this uh, with the defections. There's been some defections of horses I actually did like. I'm not going to sit and say that there's anybody that I, I love that I'm uh, hardcore into it uh, be, with with the way it's it's unfolded. As of right now, though, I am leaning to highly motivated by with, by Chad Brown. Uh, I love the way the horse dug it in the bluegrass. Uh, there there are distance questions. There are some distance possibilities, but uh, I think a lot depends on this Cattle River go. Uh, I think Rock Your World has moved up quite a bit. Uh, with the with the recent defections so uh, i'm leaning highly motivated right now but again you know we still got a week and a half to debate this stuff and tinker uh, tinker around with it what about you uh, i'm looking at hot rod charlie but yeah. I, I need to i'm going to review the thoroughgraph the sheets and uh, a couple other sources before i before i make a final decision but we'll talk about that next week on next week's of course podcast. of course but uh speaking of kentucky derby I attended my first derby in 1992. That was the year that Lil E.T. won. But it just so happens, ironically, that our guest was no stranger to that particular derby, 1992. Uh, in fact, our guest tonight nearly pulled off the ultimate Cinderella story in 1992 when she trained a chocolate brown colt by the nickname of Stanley with a turfy pedigree that finished second that year. She turned the horse racing establishment upside down and became a media darling, proving her doubters incorrect. Our guest is the closest a female trainer has come to first place in America's greatest horse race. We invite you to listen to the story of Casual Lies and her trainer, our guest on the Auxiliary Gate podcast, Shelly Riley. How are you doing, Shelly? Well, I'm terrific, and it's really great to be able to spend a, a little bit of time with you reminiscing. Now, you're, you're talking to us from Oregon tonight. Is that correct? I am. And it's actually a beautiful day here, although it's not going to get into the 60s yet. But you guys know about variable weather. Yes. What, what city in Oregon are you at? Are you in Bend. Bend, oh, Bend. Bend. Bend is the home of the last blockbuster or something like that? Or, it am is. I, am I right? Fact. So, Shelley... Uh, First of all, let's uh, let's get into your background a little bit. Uh, tell us, how, how did you get into to training horses? Well, I guess we'd have to start way back when uh, Horse Crazy Girl, who went to the library and found every book she could find that had 
stories about horses who begged her father forever, it seemed, to buy her a horse. And he finally did. He bought me a horse for $250. And I did some gymkhana with her and did some team roping, actually, as I got to be better. And then I started uh, rubbing horses at Bay Meadows Quarter Horse Meet on the weekends for free. And I learned a little, and first, actually, I mostly got to clean stalls because they didn't trust me to lead the fiery quarter horses around. But I met my future husband there, jockey Jim Riley. And when the meet ended, we uh, had gotten married and we went, followed the circuit down to Los Alamitos. And as the years went by and we changed states and north to south, we decided to start training our own horses and horses for clients. And that's really where I got my feet wet is probably in Sacramento. Um, you know, we the outside of the track had harness horses, so it was hard as a rock out there. And the inside was where the thoroughbreds and the quarter horses. And that's really where I started to learn how to train uh, race horses. Eventually, um, when I got my license, which is an interesting story behind that, uh, we mostly trained quarter horses, and I didn't, you know, have a barn of 15 or 16 quarter horses. And occasionally, if we had a thoroughbred, it would be one that I owned myself. And we started out with, you know, buying a horse for $600 on a runout. If he made $600, you paid the guy. If he didn't, <laughs> he didn't pay. <laughs> So we really did start at the bottom of the scrap heap, so to speak. But uh, yeah, it was that was the start, and then I started pin hooking to you know get horses to train up to the two-year-old training races and hopefully make money. And mostly we did that in California at the small uh, sales, the yearling sales, and then we decided to venture back to where the really good horses usually came from. And that was uh, Lexington and the Keeneland sales. And uh, I talk about that quite a bit in the book that I wrote, the memoir. And I really didn't have any trouble poking fun at myself about how green were we were when we went back there. But we had several under our belt before I ventured back there and decided we might want to try the, the short yearlings, as you call them. And that's the January mixed uh, sale at Keeneland. So you have brood mares, horses of racing age, yearlings. And uh, I'd get my catalogs together and really research. And I'd head out in the morning and take a look at the horses that I could afford. And uh, that's how I discovered, uh, or I, sh I actually think he discovered me, that uh, Stanley. And I met uh, at the on a cold, wintry day. It was snowing, and it was very early in the morning. And I hadn't gone to look at him because I thought his uh, catalog looked – there were stakes winners, lots of them in there. It didn't look like something I could afford. We had refinanced our house to get a better interest rate, and I took equity out of 25000 and I headed back there to buy horses with it. Not everybody, you know, puts their house on the line to buy horses. But <laughs> Not and, advisable, that's for sure, right? Yeah, and it was really cold out that morning, and I'd looked at the horses that I wanted to look at, and I headed up to the sales pavilion. And when I think back, it still kind of makes my hair stand up to think of all the things that had to happen 
for me to be at that point when that little horse looked at me and I looked back at him. I could have, you know, gone in to get a cup of chocolate or coffee, or I could have been on the other side of the pit, you know, the pit where they've got the two horses going up to the sales door. And I could have been on the other side, but I was standing there leaning and listening to the updates. And I heard him updating this colt. And I like to mark that down. And his full sister had just run third in a stakes in New York. And they were announcing it that morning. And he just looked at me and I just looked back. And I know it sounds like a Flicka or a Black Beauty story, but it's really true. I just... He had the biggest eyes and the prettiest head, and the rest of him was kind of hairy, and he was little because he was a late May foal. And I just looked at that catalog page, and there was nobody around. There was literally usually the place is packed, and there was I don't know where they all were. I walked around into the pit, and I took a look at him, and all, the whole time he kept trying to nibble at my fingers or pull at my coat. And when the hammer came down, I owned him for $7,500. Wow. And we can see what happened. So it, it, how did everybody else miss on the Colt? Was it just the fact that nobody was around? Was it was there any certain reason other than, other than fate? Well, it, it was very early. It was super cold. And I seriously, it was snowing. And, I don't think they, I don't know if they were in having coffee in the coffee shops or, you know, over in the bars or what, but there just wasn't anybody around. Right. And there was only one person that bid against me. There was only maybe 10 people in the sales pavilion itself. And I think it just, you know, he was a late fool if they'd looked at him. When I called Jim in uh, California, he was at the at the our barn, and I could hear all the activity in the background. And I told him I'd bought a colt, and I was actually pretty nervous about it because I thought he went too cheap. And he opened up the catalog, and the first thing he said was, "What's wrong with him?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, he's kind of small, but he'll grow." And he said, "Yeah," and I said, "And he's really hairy, and he's, <laughs> and he's brown." And he said, okay, but what's wrong with him? And I said, well, he toes out a little bit on a hind leg, but not much. I don't think that's really going to better out than in, he said. So uh, I raced over to look at him at the barn again. And the whole time he just kept, he was just the friendliest horse I think I've ever been around. And that was true throughout uh, the time that I owned him and, he just kept pulling my jacket buttons off and he just was, but I couldn't see anything wrong with him. And he came to California and guess what? He grew and he grew a lot and he was a really good, good sized horse. Yeah. Why did you decide to name him or nickname him Stanley? Well, it, people ask me that all the time as well as why I named him casual eyes. But I, every horse that came into my barn was an individual and they weren't a pedigree. They were allowed to be whatever they could be. And he just, they more or less would, you know, name themselves. I mean, he could have been a Steven or a Derek or whatever, <laughs> but he just, Stanley seemed to suit him. And I often regret having named my memoir, Casualize a Triple Crown Adventure, instead of naming it A Horse with Two Names. Yeah. Because Everybody referred to him as Stanley. So 
at which track were you based? Did you race mainly on the on the fair circuit or? We we did what we never ventured down to Southern California. We just didn't have the horses of that caliber. Um, the horses that we did have of that caliber, we had for other trainers. So once we got them, you know, working and you know where they could be trusted on the main track, they would go to that trainer. And mostly that was Leonard Shoemaker, but there were others. Um, and we were, stayed mostly at Pleasanton and shipped to wherever we trained. And our thoroughbreds obviously would go to Bay Meadows or to Golden Gate Fields and then on the fair circuit. But Pleasanton was our home base in the end. I mean, we'd been at Sacramento in the very beginning, but right. Pleasanton became our home. So casual eyes broke his maiden in his first start, and that was at Santa Rosa. Then you put him in a stakes race at at the uh, Bay, Meadow, Bay Meadows Fair meeting, and he finished fifth, and then he came back at Bay Meadows and, and won an allowance race, and then he won a stakes race, won the Foster City Mile at Bay Meadows, and then I think in his fifth start, you decided to put him on the turf at Hollywood in the hoist the flag stakes. He ran fourth. He ran a really good fourth that day. Did, did, at that point, with, with his pedigree slanted to turf, did you – ever have any uh, thoughts of just leaving him on the turf, just make a turf animal out of him? Or, or what were your thoughts at, at, after the hoist the flag stakes? Uh, well, he really didn't run that well in the hoist of the flag. I know it looks like he did, but he, we worked him on the turf before they let us out there to work on the turf before the race, you know, a few days before. And he didn't like it. He And we did run him on the turf another time, and he didn't like it then either. He said, he had an interesting way of running and he attacked the racetrack. He would pull the track to him rather than, you know, more, it seemed like most horses push off the hind end and glide. He really attacked the track and it just seemed to break out from under him. He just didn't get the kind of footing in a sloppy or a real muddy track. He couldn't handle that either. Like the Preakness, he didn't like that at all. And uh, Gary said he was, sliding all over the place in the Preakness and thought he was, he might go down and he was considering pulling him up at the head of the lane. And he said, and all of a sudden he picked up the bit and took off and started running down the lane, but he just didn't like the turf. We would have loved it if he could have been a turf horse. And it was part of the reason when they um, asked us to go over for the Epsom Derby that I turned it down, that opportunity down. Queen wanted to meet Stanley. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's you would think he would have been the perfect turf horse, and he just wasn't. So after that, you finished third in the Hollywood Futurity, and that was behind uh, future Belmont Stakes winner and Super Sire AP Indy, and and also Dance Floor was in that race. Uh, you were you were third behind those two. I, it was a really impressive race. I went back and watched it last night, and I mean he showed a lot of heart. He, he was kind of up close to a pretty hot pace, I think, early. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, he fought hard just to, to regain third there at the end. Did, did, at that point, did you allow yourself to dream about the Kentucky Derby? Oh, no. Nope. Nope. But really? I have to say, there was, you know, when, when I was dreaming of races that were impossible, but that I would love to uh, have a horse good enough to win, the Kentucky Derby wasn't one of them. It was the Hollywood Fraternity. And um, I'm trying to remember the other one that I really like, but not the Kentucky Derby. And it was when we came back up with him after that race that 
Dwayne Oldfield, now if you remember him, um, trained thoroughbreds, and he called me and he said, are you going to nominate that colt for the Triple Crown? And I said, are you kidding me? I mean, we just ran third. We didn't win. And he said, well, you're 600 bucks and you can, you know, then you have the option. And he said, but if you don't, it gets really expensive, prohibitively so. So I did. So if it hadn't been for Dwayne Oldfield um, and Charlie Whittingham and a few other names that uh, we'd probably get to, uh, he would not have, we wouldn't have gone back for the Kentucky Derby. So yeah, I nominated him because of uh, Dwayne Oldfield. So just curious, you, you, you mentioned Charlie Whittingham. Were you stable or did, did you, were you on first name basis with these people back in the day? Like people oh, yeah. like that, did they try to help you or? Oh yeah. Everybody did. Well, I mean, there were, you know, there was, I mean, I prefer to remember all the good stuff. <laughs> I, there's no sense dwelling on the bad and the, and the best of all is just the amazing good fortune to have, had that horse in my life, just the big personality that he had, not just that he was a good racehorse. He was just a, a pleasure to be around. But when we got down to Santa Anita, uh, Tom Canoost at the time was the racing secretary. And the first thing he did was take me over to Charlie Whittingham's. He said he wanted to meet me. And so we went over there and we fed candies to uh, his, you know, had these little peppermint candies in his pocket. And we fed those to several. He had the, the first five stalls were filled with, you know, horses that just everybody knew. And it was so much fun to, there was one mare in particular and we'd be feeding. He tried feeding those to Stanley too. Um, he came over to see him, but yeah, he, um, he took quite an interest and he talked about Ferdinand and why we should, we should go back early. Um, if we went, because he said it was a track like no other, that horses that came from the West Coast, it's just, it was a deep sandy track. And as it turned out, it was something that Stanley really liked. He liked that. He could really get that grip on that track. He didn't care how deep it was. So yeah, he told us get back there as, you know, as soon as this race is over, you should, you know, get back there. That's what you should do. And we were at the races one afternoon and he came by the box we were sitting in and he said the same thing. And so are you going to fish or cut bait? <laughs> funny. Yeah. He took a personal interest and he'd come over and pet Stanley and we'd chat. He was a really cool guy. That's cool. That's awesome. Uh, let's fast forward to April of 1992 and you finished a really good third AP Indy again. This time it was in the Santa Anita Derby. Uh, around the same time, a horse named Arazi was making his pres uh, preparations for an assault on the uh, Kentucky Derby in France. Now, of course, Arazi, as I recall, was hailed as the second coming of Secretariat. And I don't think anybody thought anything other, other than that after his uh, win in the uh, British Cup Juvenile. And that was a Churchill that, the previous year. So you ran third. You just ran third in the Santa Anita Derby. Did you think maybe we maybe we duck a Rossi and AP Indy this year and, and you know there's going to be a circus because you know everybody wants to see a Rossi and you've already been beaten twice by AP Indy was was there a was there a chance you were going to skip the Derby? Well, yes, <laughs> the California Derby looked really appealing, um, but it was 
Charlie, he convinced me that we should go. And, and, you know, I've never told anyone this before, but I went over to the test barn afterwards and I was watching the three horses cooling out. And I thought that AP Andy looked a little off. Oh, really? Mm. And it turned out, remember, he had a blind quarter crack mm-hmm. that kept him out of the derby. So I thought, hmm, I mean, I knew, I still thought at that time, I foolishly thought my horse was as good as him. And it's taken me a lot of years to admit that he wasn't, but he was close <laughs> to being as good as him. Um, I think it was just a bad, an unfortunate year that we had to go up against APND all the time because he always got the job done. And uh, my horse was right there making him look, you know, making him work for it. So, and then what a great sire he turned out to be too. So, and Neil Drysdale, what an awesome, I mean, if there was anybody that I would have ever trusted to train my horse, if I couldn't, it was him. He just had a way with his horses. We were stabled down from him in the same barn in Kentucky. But uh, Arazi is the one you were referring to. Well, yeah, of course we were worried about him. But then I looked at the reports that were coming in and that the horses that they ran against or he ran against in France weren't the top tier horses. And people were saying they thought he'd be short and, you know, not just physically. I'm sorry. (laughs) But that uh, he might not be ready for that distance. So, yeah. And, you know, once we did get to Kentucky and he finally arrived, you know, they used to, there were so many reporters there because of Arazi, you know, European reporters that wouldn't have been there in any other year. And they, they, they wandered around in flocks of 20 and 30 reporters going from barn to barn. And they would just pile up outside Jared Shedro. And the day that somebody said, oh, Rosie's on his way to the track, you could have, I mean, they just split. You just heard them, their feet <laughs> pounding down the road, all heading out to see a Rosie. And we were right behind him. <laughs> we wanted to see him too. <laughs> and when I saw him on the track, or going up to the track. He didn't want to go on the track. He was reluctant to say the least. And in fact, I believe that day was the day he dumped his rider too. Um, he was getting hot and he wasn't happy. And I thought the nerves were getting to him. So he really wasn't my worry. Right. It was AP Indy. And we came into the track one morning. It was still dark out. And I saw them jogging AP, you know, and we'd drive by in the barn. You could see it off to the left, but you had to go all the way down to the other end and then come in down at the stable gate. And it was really getting close to, you know, entry. And they jogged him down the shed row, and I saw he definitely, um, he was getting off that hoof. So Neil did the right thing and didn't enter him. Apparently it had shown up, that quarter crack. Yeah. So before we get to the Derby itself, let's talk about the week leading up to the Derby and your arrival in Louisville. Uh, Alan, you, you have any questions for Shelly about that? Then I'll then I'll take take over again. Sure. Yeah, I've always been fascinated when trainers come in, especially for the first time, into uh, to this Derby setting we have here in Louisville. It's, it, it seems like it'd be either fun, overwhelming, or just an amazing experience. I assume you hadn't been to Louisville before or to Churchill Downs. I'm guessing, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So what, so what was it like? Did, 
did Churchill treat you well? I mean, was was the media all over you? Uh, it's been it's been a, a few years. I seem to remember a little bit of it. Uh, what was your experience like here when you got to, to our city? Well, <laughs> they did a really wonderful thing. They had a sort of an ambassador, uh, people that volunteered to uh, help the trainers and the owners of their uh, Kentucky Derby horses get through all of the minutiae that went along with the hike. And David and Louise Fannin were uh, a couple and they were attorneys and they asked to be assigned to us. And they were the most elected. She arranged everything. She made sure I knew everywhere I needed to go. And uh, she even arranged for the tickets that, um, you know, that we would have to. Did you know you had to buy your tickets to to see the Derby run? No. <laughs> I was like, what? I'm, you know, I had to spend 20000 to get my horse into the race, 10000 to enter, non-refundable. Right. And then another 10000 for the gate to open up, and I had to pay for a ticket. Wow. For both me and Jim. But then she, you know, made sure that they knew I needed tickets for some family, too, and some close friends. And she made sure all that happened, uh, made sure she made sure I had a derby hat, which I didn't wear. But uh, I knew it would get blown off in the wind. But, yeah, no, they were amazing. They just uh, it would have been hard, I think, without them. And then, of course, you know, at the time it was the Chrysler Triple Crown. So we had a. Uh, white Chrysler New Yorker with the Chrysler Triple Crown insignia on both doors. And that got you in almost anywhere you wanted to go. <laughs> it was like an all access pass. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it, it was, a, I have to tell you a little story that I thought was really funny. And I don't remember if I, it made it into the book or not. Cause you know, the, the book is not just about, you know, from race to race. It was all the things that went on in the background that people never see on TV. And we went up, we had to get a license to race in Kentucky. So we went up to the racing office, which was up by the front gate and the wind was just blowing up a storm. And I parked the car and I looked, there was a piece of lawn there and there was something waving in the wind caught in the grass. And I said, Jim was talking to me and I was ignoring him. I was staring at that piece of paper in the graph. And he goes, are you listening to me? I said, is that money? And he looked up and I got out and I went out and I ran up there and I put my foot on it before it blew away. And it was a $20 bill. Oh. And I told the people inside the racing office, I said, did anybody lose a $20 bill? And they were like all honest. You know, you'd think several people raise their hands, but no. <laughs> and um, no, didn't. And I said, well, I guess I won't leave here empty handed. <laughs> but in res- retrospect, you know, I later thought, hmm, two. <laughs> Maybe it should have been a $1 bill. <laughs> been better. But uh, yeah, that was kind of a fun story about that. Uh, so did the media treat I was the media treat you well while you were here and the, oh, that time? they followed me around. I, they, I had a feeling you're probably the second biggest story next to Rosie, or maybe you're the biggest story as I recall. I don't know. Well, that's because none of the other trainers would talk to them. Oh and, really? <laughs> well, they had a lot to do. I just had one horse. Oh, so, there'd be twenty deep. I mean, they'd bring me flowers. I just 
all sorts of things. I heard one guy, when we were following them up to Razi, he said, oh, you know, they have to fill their column, right? And if nobody will talk to them, then they have to make up stuff. But I guess things haven't really changed, have they? No, they really haven't changed, have they? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I heard him say, I got more from her in 10 minutes than I got from all the other trainers. So, yeah, I was more than willing to uh, exchange with them. And it was really fun for me, too. It really added to the whole experience. And how how long did you stay in Louisville? Uh, during this, uh, you just had the one horse. Were you here for a while with the casual eyes? Or? Yeah, we got there a month ahead of time. Oh. And we shipped out, I think, three days later uh, to go to Pimlico. You know, we flew him along with several other horses. But, you know, I think the biggest thing was, you know, I'd have to go out there every night at 10 o'clock just to make sure. Because the temperature... You could have a fan on the stall because it was so hot during the day. And around 8 o'clock, I'd go out there and, and Stanley looked like a big chipmunk. He was freezing to death, shivering. And so I had to get him a big, you know, thick quilted blanket. And I wanted to be sure at 10 o'clock that it was, did he need the, I didn't want him sweating in the morning either. So I had to go out every night and make sure that the temperature was right for what, you know, he needed to be wearing in his stall. And I remember one night I looked up and they had the twin spires lit and it, there was this sort of fog and a little something going across in front of it. And it was really kind of eerie to think in a wonderful way to look up there and realize you were really there. You were yeah. really at the Kentucky Derby and all the horses that and trainers that had come before it it was almost this like out of body moment. And that was probably the, the, the first time that I really realized what was going on because we were having a little difficulty with him. They didn't get the rice hole bedding for him that he needed because he liked to eat straw, which bloated him. He loved to eat and they brought in shavings and apparently he was eating the shavings and he had a rather unfortunate, we weren't even sure we were going to be able to run. His stomach sounded like a washing machine, and uh, he got outworked by a maiden. And so we were, re- and that's when I, you know, got back from the barn after that. I was shocked, and I could hear his stomach from outside. And we realized he'd had some kind of a, you know, poisonous reaction to those wood shavings. And so we cleaned that stall out, and we they didn't have rice holes that I'd asked for, so we bedded him in Timothy. And that's a pretty expensive betting, but he's worth it. Yeah. So he got over all of that. But yeah, it was the we it was stressful at that point. Jim really wanted to pack up and go home. And I said, No, 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 give him a chance. Let's, you know, and then he got over it pretty quickly once we put him onto the Timothy. He didn't like Timothy, so he wasn't bloating up on that. And then when we worked him just before the uh draw. Uh, Gary Stevens worked in five eighths of a mile and he said he had at that time, you know, it's many years ago, but he said that he, well, he was stunned when he came back he suddenly believed in the horse. He said he'd never been on a horse that accelerated quite as explosively as he did. So Hmm. he was uh, enthusiastic. I can't uh, not, when we're talking about the, um, the press, 
I have to talk about uh, Tony Slocken with NBC and Lynn Swan with NBC. He, I got called up to the office and I went up there. I didn't know what was going on. And I got called up there and they said, well, you know, here's a message and it's from Lynn Swan. He's going to be coming out and spending a week out here and interview. And I went back. I don't know who he was. I didn't pay any attention to them football. I do. <laughs> so I went back to the barn and I said, Jim says, well, what's up? And I said, well, he's some guy named Perry Swan or something like that. Is supposed to be coming to. And he goes, who? And I said, I don't know, somebody Swan. He goes, Lynn Swan? I said, uh-huh. He goes, you don't know who Lynn Swan is? I said, no. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I do now. We had more fun. For a solid week, he spent with us. He was helping me clean the stall. We were carrying the muck basket out together to the manure pile. Like Chelsea Canty standing there laughing. Everybody's laughing at Lynn's lawn cleaning a stall. We <laughs> had a ball. Oh, and the other thing, too, on the Kentucky Derby draw day, right after the draw, Lynn Swan does this whole parody like he's riding out in this courtyard and there's all these people around and he starts doing this parody like he's riding a horse and he's whipping and he's calling the race and he had us winning the race. <laughs> almost. He's almost right. He was terrific. He came to visit us too at the Belmont with his, his, with his wife. You know who he is now, right? Four Super Bowls, one of the greatest receivers in history. You know that now, right? I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I knew fairly quickly who he yeah. was. I was just being a terrific. Uh, he made me laugh all the time. We we got in a lot of trouble, actually. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Tony Slotkin, Neil Drysdale, you know, he had this whole fancy tack room he had all set up down there. And mine, we just had a tack trunk and a couple of garden chairs, you know. I mean, one horse, you'll need a tack trunk and some buckets and, you know, bags of grain and stuff. And so Tony wanted to interview for the telecast. And so Neil let us have his uh, tack room to uh, do that. And he just was so terrific to us that he'd come down pretty much every morning and, and chat with us and, you know, see how our horse was doing. And um, I went up to pet AP Indy, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like Stanley. He didn't really care about all that, you know, scratching by an ear stuff, but he was a, a, a presence. That's for sure. It's good horses have a presence. Okay. Cece, what do you got? Well, Shelly, the 92 Derby was unique in, in a lot of different ways. You know, of course, we've already talked about Arazi. And then AP Indy, of course, he was the, the $2.9 million Keeneland yearling purchase. But then we had uh, MC Hammer had dance floor in the mm -hmm. race. Uh, Jenny Craig had Dr. Devious. Dr. Devious actually right. won when they had some Derby. Mm -hmm. uh, he was yeah. like, I think, I think the horse was a $2 million gift from, from Jenny Craig to, to husband Sid. You, know, you want to know the story about that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I get a phone call after the Santa Anita Derby, and somebody wanted to know if I would consider selling Casual Lies. 
And I said, well, of course, for the right price. And I'd always said, you know, if somebody offered us, there was three times that I turned down money for him. One was the day he broke his maiden. And I don't even know who the jockey was, but he came up to me at the racing office and asked me if I'd take 75000 for him. And, I, of course, I said no. Um, then somebody else offered me 150 And I said, well, I'm still not going to pay off my house, so I'm not interested. Then we were offered 265000 by Dwayne Ofield, and I said yes oh. on a Friday and because it would pay off my house, <laughs> and it just made sense. It would change our life, you know, in that sense, and Jim kept saying, no, you, you, this is a big mistake. You shouldn't do this, and I said, I think this was before... Yeah, it was uh, that was after the uh, two-year-old stakes that he won. It was before the um, fraternity. So um, that was on a Friday, and we still hadn't gotten. And we, my mother kept saying, if it doesn't feel right, you shouldn't do it. I was sick the whole weekend, and Jim kept saying, you have to turn. I said, I already told him I would. Well, they never called me again. Huh. This story wouldn't be happening. So then they asked me if I would be interested in selling him. And so I said, well, what kind of money are we talking about? And they said 2.7 million. And, and I can't tell you how many people gave me a bad time. You know, the press gave me a bad time about not taking 2.7 million. I said, but though they never really offered it. They asked me if I would consider. And then they started saying 1.2 up front. Another, oh, Let's don't forget two tickets to the Derby and a limousine. And I thought, and I said to him, what, no, you know, Sunday hat. <laughs> I mean, they really thought, I mean, they were talking to me like I was Minnie Pearl. <laughs> and then, you know, a, another amount at another time to be determined. Well, you don't sell a living, breathing animal in increments like that. Right. Not to mention, if they'd have pushed a check across the table, I would have probably pushed the shank back across but that never happened it was really just kind of a fishing expedition and then i heard they bought that horse and i'm not correct me if i'm wrong but i think he ran last or next to last in the derby he did not run well i know if i'm not mistaken I, he was i think he was mid-pack he, he ran okay but it, it, he he didn't threaten yeah but you know in in retrospect i'm glad they you know that they didn't actually push that check across the table because oh, yeah. Look what I would have missed. Right. So, right. Yeah. Okay. So back to your question. Well, I was just just pointing out, you know, it, a lot was going on that year. You know, Enrique uh, uh, Fiatkovsky had just purchased K Met out of that mess, uh, and he was oh, running yeah. a horse in the Derby. And I remember there was a controversy where he was running the horse in the Devil's Red and Blue, although he didn't have permission to do that. I think somebody else had bought right. the silks. Uh, on the day of the the bankruptcy auction, but he's he's running the horse in the in the devil's red and blue, and then you've got D Wayne Lucas was there, and did your horse cost seventy five hundred dollars? Did you ever think maybe this is too much for me? I'm I'm a little overwhelmed, or, or did you feel like you didn't belong, or how? What was your thought process going into that derby? I never doubted my horse, never except when he wasn't feeling well, you know, that for that little time where we had to correct the, the betting issue, but I never doubted him. He, he, he'd proven himself on the West coast. 
So I never doubted him. It was just everybody else didn't take it seriously, and then they did. Uh, we were more of a three-ring circus for them than anything else. But I remember in the saddling paddock, there were some guys standing on the fence down at the far end close to where the shake had his horse being saddled and they were going, Hey, shake, Hey, shake baby. <laughs> and everybody's laughing because he's calling them shake baby. Look over here. <laughs> so yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on that year. And that I'm, I'm pretty sure Tony told me that that was the first year that they had broadcast or telecast, I should say to Russia and the Russians, my blog Kentucky Derby, or let's say casualizedkentuckyderby.blogspot.com, most of the hits I get are from Russia. They love to read whatever, whenever I say something. The Russians were really enthusiastic. So they had another 40 million viewers that year um, because of Russian television. I didn't know that. Huh. No, I didn't either. So let's talk about the race itself. Now, of course, we've talked about that morning AP Indy scratched out of the race. So that opened things up a little bit. You know, you still had to deal with the Rossi, but, uh, I remember watching the race. I was there live, of course, and Gary Stevens pushed casualized kind of to the leaders, but on the outside, all of a sudden here comes a Rossi. And I remember Mike Battaglia calling the race and he says, a Rossi is gaining ground. And it's like, oh, it's over now. Here comes Secretariat all over again. I'm here. I'm at the Derby where a Rossi is going to win by 10 lengths. And he rushed up. So were you thinking the same thing I was? Like, eh, the race is over. Or, or how did you feel at that point? Well, I couldn't see anything from where I was. Um, I was having a heart attack. <laughs> All I hoped was that he would come out of that massive field safe and sound. And, I mean, my heart was pounding. I could hear it in my ears. There was pain running down my left arm. I just was beside myself. I couldn't see him anywhere. But when I watched the replay, and if you look to the – if you watch it very carefully and you look to the inside – and Arazi's making that move. And when I say, well, when he stopped making that move, you'll look to see that horse that went with him. That was casualized. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. And he's the one casualized, put him away. But then yeah. basically he kind of put me away too. <laughs> um, I mean, Stanley had three-eighths of a mile of explosive. And you could use it in the beginning, you could use it in the middle, or you could use it at the end. And Gary said that when that horse started to come to him and go by him, he thought that there he, he didn't have any other choice. That, you know, if somebody didn't challenge him, that the horse would just go off and win like he did in the Breeders' Cup. So he did. And it looked like the right thing to do until that little horse called Lily came up. And I, I still think that you can see casualized shift and there actually was some shift lead, leads and you could see little ET open up a little bit more than a length. And then you could see Stanley come back on again. So that it was really, you know, just barely a length. You know, horses know where the finish line is. 
And I think he saw that finish line. I mean, he's getting tired too, but uh, he tried to come back on, but it was too late and he just got out run. But then we were like five lengths in front of the field. So yeah. I'm disappointed. I was gutted. <laughs> I was gutted. But if only's in the what ifs, I cried buckets. Well, yeah. that was my next question. Like I remember 1994. I remember watching TV after Go for Gin won the Derby, and some novice local reporter was interviewing Arthur Hancock. This is hours after the race. Arthur Hancock trained owned Stroge Creek, who ran second, I believe, that year. And the 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 local reporter was so excited for Arthur Hancock. You know, you just ran second. I mean, you, you should be so proud and excited and everything. You can just see on Arthur Hancock's face, he, he handled it well, but you could tell he was really disappointed. So you just ran second in America's greatest horse race. And you, you've already said you you were disappointed. It, it, you know, were you, were you proud? Were you elated to, to actually maybe get second? Or, or what? I mean, was it all disappointment at that point? I was gutted. I was so disappointed and you know, it was Steve Haskins who was with the racing form at the time who found me outside of the, they, you know, insisted that we had to go over to the Kentucky Derby museum for this after party. And so we went over there, you know, just to be there for a few minutes. And I was, you know, it was started pouring down rain and I was just soaking wet. And you couldn't tell the teardrops from the raindrops. And he said, aren't you excited? You just ran second in the Kentucky Derby. I said, we didn't win. And I was sure we were going to win. And he said, that was the best finish for a horse trained by a woman in the history of the Kentucky Derby. And I said, oh, (laughs) I didn't know that. And he made me feel so much better. And you know, it was later that I realized what an amazing feat, you know, when they talk about lightning in a bottle. But I think, you know, part of it is you have to realize that I know I was never going to get another horse like that, you know, to have all the things that had to happen for me to have that horse. I still look back, I can't believe it happened. So am I delighted? Now he ran as hard as he could. He ran the best race he could and he did something tremendous. So, was I disappointed at that moment? I wasn't disappointed later that day. Uh, one more Derby question. I, this just popped into my mind. I, I'd forgotten about this. Did you did you pass out after the race? Did, you know, that is the rumor of rumors. Here's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling the truth. Somebody, well, you know, I was jumping like I told you. I was... With every the whole crowd, you know, it's amazing. You say, Oh, I'm not gonna scream, I'm not gonna come on, come on, come on. Well, you've seen the best of them out there screaming, come on, come on, come on. And I was jumping up and down too when I saw him get in front. I was listening to the loudspeaker because I couldn't hear. Uh, I mean I couldn't see where he was. And when he finally got out in front, and Jim was saying, He's right there, he's winning. And then this little horse starts running up on the outside and I go, oh, no, no, he's going to catch him, he's going to catch him. Well, when it was over and we'd run sick and I went to sit down and somebody moved the chair. So I was caught, but the 
the funny story is actually that the next day where the press tent was set up, you know, on the backside overlooking the track. And it, you can't believe it looked like a bomb, a garbage truck had blown up back there because all the backside personnel and families and so forth came out and picnicked out there all day on Derby Day. And there was a press tent set up there every morning for people to come and get coffee and, you know, donuts or bagels or whatever. And we went over there um, and there's just all this garbage everywhere. And I'd say about 10 reporters and I didn't have a voice. I mean, I didn't even have a whisper. It was gone. So, I mean, I was urging him along definitely uh, the previous day hoping, you know, that my voice would, he would hear me and that he would, he would win. But that backside, those are just some of the images, you know, as the twin spires that night in the fog and uh, that backside after the celebration <laughs> and what that, what Churchill Downs has to deal with after the party of all parties is over. So you ran third in the Preakness. It was a, it was a big race. Uh, behind Pine Bluff and Allie Deed. And then you go on to finish fifth in the Belmont. I think he might've injured himself. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. He maybe popped a, or popped a quarter crack or something like that. Yeah. He did the same thing AP Andy did. And in fact, in the book, I put a little gallery in the back of pictures and there's a picture of how much, well, when we, I couldn't understand, you know, why he finished fifth. Number one, it just, he seemed like the distance would really be good for him. And when we got back to the barn and I looked down and I'm, you know, bathing his feet and I looked down and the whole side of his uh, hoof bulged out with an opening that we had to cut a tremendous amount of his hoof away to get to that abscess and get it out. So he had the same thing AP Andy had, which was a blind abscess. He's just, he didn't limp. He had no heat in his foot. He had no pulse to the foot and it just came apart in the race. So, yeah. And we only had to outrun one horse to make a million dollars. Oh, well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of why I, I published my book under the, my publishing name, runner up publication. Oh. <laughs> nice. Very clever. So did, did your life change after that triple crown season? Well, you know, it was interesting too, is, you know, with the press following us all over in New York, NBC did a day there. And then on the road with Charles Corralt, they did a day there with us up to the top of the, you know, um, Empire State Building and so forth. And then they followed us back to California and, you know, with a camera crew and did. And so when we got back to California, there's a big sign over the stable gates, his home of casual eyes. <laughs> nice. Very two nice. foot letters. Uh, they put a camera on his stall so that the gate crew, you know, the front gate could see him at all times, night or day, because people were coming up wanting to do the tourist thing and pet him. In fact, that's a funny story, too. We had a guard on him at Woody Stevens Barn. We were in Woody Stevens Barn at the Belmont, and we had a guard there, too, once we left at night. And one day I was thinking, geez, he's so tired today, you know? He was just wanting to sleep instead of, well, apparently my friendly little horse just loved that guard, and the guard would park his his chair right in front of the stall and, you know, 
play with his lips all night. He was petting <laughs> and scratching his ears. Yeah. Keep himself awake. So he and Stanley, as long as somebody was willing to stand there and do that, he was going to stay up for the fun. So, uh, but yeah, we had a, a guard there and the Charles Carroll. Then Sports Illustrated, you know, had done an article during the, they sent a reporter that spent a week following us around and they did a, wow. a full page. Well, in fact, I was a centerfold of uh, Sports Illustrated, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but you know, cleaning the stall, cleaning the rice holes. Um, but they sent another uh, reporter for a follow-up story, so two stories in uh, Sports Illustrated. But you know, it's interesting how you start to feel like you're really important, and then when it's all over, the phone stops ringing. Yeah. So your little 15 seconds of fame. It's a it's like a little withdrawal to realize that maybe everything you have to say isn't quite as important as you thought it was. I've never had that problem, but I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Shelly, I, I pulled out an old racing form from that year, and I saw. Well, it's obvious that obviously you're a, you're a really good storyteller, but there was a diary entry in the racing form, and then as well. They they showed you on the ABC telecast uh, writing diary entries. Uh, how did they find out about your uh, your your ability to tell stories? Or how, where did that come from? Well, you know, I, I guess it really there was the affinity that I had even in high school. The teachers always saved my stories till last when they were getting bored. Um, I do just like to tell stories, but that was Steve Haskins again, and I I could call him up every day and thank him because it was those uh, that really made up the memories for me, you know, writing down what happened each day. Because you know how just can you really think of every day of last year? You know, it just I wrote those, and then when I decided, it took me a lot of years to go ahead and write the memoir uh, because I did lay it all out there. Cause it's really kind of a love story. It's not a racehorse story. And he just asked me to, he just kept pushing at me to do it. And so I agreed and uh, it was a blessing for so many. It made me aware each day, how special each day was there with all the things that I got to see and the people that I met, Oprah Winfrey coming into um, the saddling area to Preakness saying, I want to meet Stanley. And you know how she knew two Stanleys. <laughs> yeah, Stanley was there too. Um, you know, meaning MC Hammer. A lot of people might be too young to remember that. I remember. Yeah. Um, and she was, and Stanley was on his toes and Jim was circling her around and she'd standing there just staring at him, wanting to pet him, but he was really on his toes and we were afraid she was going to get kicked. And Jim kept saying, you better get back. You're going to get kicked. And I said, stop growling at Oprah. Oprah. <laughs> so there's a lot of memories that are pretty special. And I have another little story that I don't know, but I put that into the memoir. And that was the draw for the Preakness. And it was the year that Shaquille O'Neal first came, became, you know, up the draft for the basketball draft. 
And they had, I think it was the coach for what, the Washington team or West Sunset. It was West Sunset, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Well, he was a local native. Okay. So we're sitting in this building where they're doing the draw. And I'm there with Jim, obviously, and my veterinarian from California who came out to, to watch the races and his assistant. And you know why they call it the luck of the draw? And so there's a little leather bottle with numbers that, you know, as many numbers as there are entries. And then there's the entry sheets and they're in a box and the box is facing away. And one person pulls the sheet as the other person pulls out a number. And that will correspond to the uh, horse's stall number that he's going to break from. And he lifted up the first sheet and he and the guy named the number and he said he looked at it and he said Shaquille O'Neal. Hmm. Everybody laughed. But that was the luck of the draw. Who was that horse really that they pulled? The first one. He may have ended up in the outside post, which is a really bad position on the previous. Nobody ever said what that, but he had to put it back in the box and do it again. And I looked up, we got, I think we ended up in position five, so I wasn't going to say anything. And how could you fix it after it had already been done? Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. But yeah, no, nobody knew it. I just, I thought, oh, my God, did you see that? Huh. You know who the horse that was that drew outside, right? I think it was dance floor. It was dance floor. And uh, the, <laughs> the owners blew up. Yeah. Uh, Hammer, yeah. MC Hammer and his father, they threw a fit because I think they'd drawn outside in the Kentucky Derby as well. But I don't, they, know, I don't yeah, know. I remember that. that. I don't know who that sheet was that he pulled when he made the joke, Shaquille O'Neal. In other words, the first draw is Shaquille O'Neal. Wow. I don't remember that. That's awesome. Nobody <laughs> talked about it. No, never heard that story. This That's is crazy. breaking news. <laughs> yeah. That is incredible. So, Shelly, uh, you know, today racing is dominated by the super trainers and the wealthiest of the wealthy owners. And you just don't see small stables in the Derby at all. And you don't see female trainers either. Now, you almost pulled off the upset of a lifetime by being able to accomplish both of those. When you look back at that season, what are you the most proud of? I think um, I think it was my faith in my horse that, you know, I never doubted that both his personality that he had, because it really takes a, a personality, you know, to get through. I mean, when we were walking, you know, over to um, the saddling paddock, we had to get through this gauntlet, because like I told you, there were so many people on the backside, and they wanted us. They didn't have like a receiving barn there. They just announced to bring the, you know, the derby horses up. And then we were lined up. But there was just this, well, you know, the when you think about the big bicycle races and, you know, you see all these people reaching out towards the bicycle riders as they come through and the gap gets narrower and narrow. That was the way it was with the horses. And there were just so many people and we had to get through it. And he was kind of wide-eyed and he kept reaching out with his nose and I put my hand up there and he just stayed 
he stayed calm where some of them weren't as calm with all those people pushing at him and so forth as he made it through there. And then you get over to the other side to the saddling paddock and you get in there and just so much noise and so much going on, horses everywhere and all those owners and people in the center kind of moving out where they shouldn't be and hoofs flying and, and he just stayed calm. And so, yeah, I was proud that, you know, we'd spent a lot of time with him where he was pretty push button with most things, but he had to have that personality for that to happen. So with uh, Kentucky Derby coming up here in less than two weeks, any horses you have your eyes on? Well, I do see that there is a horse that may go in um, named Hidden Stash, who mm -hmm. Victoria Oliver. Right. Has. Well, you know I'm going to be hoping for her. Heck yeah. Really, it's been so long, I think, since anybody. Um, who was the last one? Uh, Female the trainer. Mucho Macho Man? Yeah, and he Kathy Ritvo. Kathy Ritvo, yeah. Mm -hmm. It just happened so seldom, and that was a good horse, too. Yeah, no doubt really about that. Uh, Alan, do you have any more questions for, for Shelly? Well, a couple quick statements, I suppose. You know, Shelly, uh, it's, it's ironic that we had you on here for the 92 Derby because we actually had the winner of the 92 Derby on about a couple weeks ago. You may not know this enough. You want to go back and check it out from a different perspective. We had Pat Day on a few weeks ago. And of course he was the, around here, the notoriety is that that's Pat Day's first and only Kentucky Derby. So uh, it, it was quite a year of, uh, of achievements back then in 92. Um, did, did you realize that was Pat Day's only Kentucky Derby victory? Well, I remember meeting him at the after party and someone stopped him and congratulated him, someone that was with us. And he said, have you met Shelly Riley? And he looked at me and he goes, who? <laughs> and they said, casual eyes. And he goes, oh, yeah, nice little horse. Really? Hey, <laughs> he, He's like yeah. the nicest person on earth. Actually, yeah, he wasn't being rude. He just didn't know who we were. You know, it's, it's ironic because here in here in Louisville, there's a statue outside of Churchill Downs now with and it's Pat Day's uh, winter circle uh, pose after he won the 92 Derby, and it's plastered all over town here. So uh, there's a certain bit of irony uh, to that. And the book, make sure we get, people know about the, the exact title of this book. Uh, I know it's been out for several years now, but apparently it's been well-received. And uh, give us the exact title. Yes, it's Casual Lies, a Triple Crown Adventure. And you can get it on Amazon or, you know, you could order it from Barnes and Noble. It's sold all over the world. I mean, you name a country and it's sold. It's just I have absolutely no problem poking fun at myself. And I do so freely in there. And I think the biggest complaint I've had about the book was that it wasn't long enough. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it's long for a memoir. But, yeah, no, I, I, I have a good time poking some fun at myself. Well, good. CC. All right. Well, we'll we'll wrap it up here. And uh, Shelly, I could listen to you for hours tell stories. This is yeah, you're amazing. quite the storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta admit. Now, Alan, we've got to get with Brandon and get get to the backside at some point in the next two weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, we're gonna hit Brandon up to to get us back there. I don't have an owner's license anymore, so. Um, well, it's fun on the backside too. I tell you, I think the party. It's from the looks of it, the party was really going down on the backside. Yeah, I don't 
no doubt about that. On a derby day. But um, I'll take a look at all of the other horses. I love to uh, handicap them, but I like to look at their races and see how they run them. You know, if they're lugging out, if they're, right. you know, the, the reins are dangling or if they're up in the bit, flicking their ears, whatever. And um, I'll let you know who I really think should uh, well, you know who I hope will win. But I'll let you know who I think. Yeah, Shelly, when you when you figure it out, you got to let me know. OK, I will. Because I, I need to hit one of these derbies at some point. Okay. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm behind. Right. <laughs> OK. Any, Anyway, well, Shelly, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to do this. This, this, Like I said, this has been a blast. Uh, I wish you well. If you ever come to Kentucky, look us up. We'll buy you a drink or or whatever you need us to do. But uh, you're you're all class, and and this is just uh, so grateful that you joined us tonight. Amen. Amen. Thank you for having me. I've had – it's been fun looking back. Absolutely. Okay. That's Shelly Riley, everybody. And that concludes another edition of the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. We want to invite you to listen in the coming weeks as Kentucky Derby approaches. We'll have our Kentucky Derby seminar next week. And we'll also have our Kentucky Derby call-in show. And we'll try to have as much fun as we can. So on behalf of Alan Schneider and Brandon No Show Jaggers, I'm reminding you that gambling money ain't got no home.